today's uh, sermon is uh, from chapter 1 of Luke. It's page 1026 if you want to open it up in your own Bible. But I'm going to try and do something a little bit different today. I'm not going to read it out. Um, I saw that the service uh, when I was making it was going to be a bit longer than, than normal. So in an attempt to shorten this, and I wanted to do this before anyway, I'm going to include the reading into my sermon. And I'll do a kind of a amplified reading. Remember that Bible, the Amplified Bible? I, don't, I haven't seen one of those in years, but it's a bit like this. So, um, I'll kind of, you'll we'll see what happens in there. Um, before I start, let me say uh, this. It's been, it's been a crazy few weeks, hasn't it, in the world? Uh, you got the attacks in Lebanon, Mali, Paris, California. And something tried to happen again in London last night. Syria seems to be getting crazier and more complicated every week uh, and now of course uh, the UK government has decided to, to go bomb ISIS and naturally of course at times like this people begin to wonder you know what, what's going on is this the beginning of some big change in history uh, is God on the move in the history of the world and I've begun to see around the edges of my uh, Facebook and Twitter feeds uh, people trying to tie ISIS into the Bible. You know, they're saying this is this part of Revelation speaks to ISIS. This is they, this is actually about them. When I and when I was growing up in the eighties, even though I wasn't listening to Christian things, I heard about the European Union being that was what Revelation was about. And in the eighties, it was the Saddam Hussein, and then it was Bin Laden, and now it's ISIS. I don't know if too many of these probably are caught up in all that stuff. But you might find yourself asking, where is God in all of this? Where is he in the, in the world today? What's he doing about it? So, let's bear that in mind as we're reading. We're going to start from verse 26 of chapter 1. I think, yes, so you will be able to see it up there, hopefully. I'm uh, going to try something new. So in the six months we start off, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Angels, of course, are servants, God's servants, doing whatever it is he tells them to do. And in fact, that's what the, the word angel means. It means messenger. So sending messages on behalf of God is primarily what we see angels do in Scripture. This is not the first time that the Bible talks about Gabriel either. He's been mentioned before. Last week we heard about him. He was the one who talked to Zechariah and told him about that Elizabeth was about to give birth. He was also the angel in the book of Daniel, where Daniel gives a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And, lo and behold, here he is, announcing the birth of Jesus. So God sends Gabriel to Nazareth in Galilee, and there he goes to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. It's almost certain that she was young, probably only a few years at most past puberty, so we're talking anything up to 15 years old. We are, we're not actually told her age. We are told that she's a virgin and she's betrothed to Joseph. And by the way, uh, I only learned this recently, but betrothal is it's not like our engagements today where you, you can break it off with no penalty. But you know what I mean. But to be betrothed to someone means that you have entered into an agreement to get married. But unlike our engagements, if you break it off, you need to get a divorce. 
It's a bit more serious. You know, that's why if you ever read Matthew's Gospel and wondered why Joseph was going to divorce Mary when they weren't married, it's because of this betrothal thing. Joseph was also a descendant of David, and that's an important piece of information, as you'll see in a second. And then the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, I, uh, I thought about this for a while, but I said no in the end. You could, I suppose, I could say a lot about this verse because it comes up a lot in the debate between Catholicism and Protestantism. All I'm going to say is that uh, our Catholic brothers and sisters teach that Mary was sinless. They don't teach it because of this verse, but they do use this verse when they're backing up that teaching. Um, and in some older English versions of, the, of this, the, the wording is, Hail Mary, full of grace, which, as you can imagine, is more prone to being something that supports the idea of her sinlessness. But I disagree, and, and that's all I'm going to say on it. I don't think she was sinless, for a number of reasons, but mostly because uh, the Bible shows us again and again, as Paul says in Romans, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That must surely include her too. She was special, though. And this, I think we lose this sometimes. And we'll see in a while that she was a good model for us. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting might this be. And she's basically a little bit freaked out, as you can imagine, right? Um, and in fact, if you look at all the times that people see angels in the Bible, there's only one universal characteristic of those interactions, and that is people getting really, really afraid. But we can actually, um, all we can actually only assume, sorry, is that she's afraid by seeing him because what we are told is that what really worries her here is what he says to her. Not his, not his appearance. Why, she asks. Why am I highly favored? What have I done to deserve this? But the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. So what we see here is Gabriel reassures her that she has no need to be afraid. In fact, she's going to be doing something amazing. Gabriel tells her, you've been chosen. God has decided to put his favor onto her. We're not told why she's found favor. And speculation on that point goes back to our difference of opinion with our Catholic friends. But whatever the reason, God chose her to carry and give birth to this child, a boy who she was to call Jesus. No. We are, of course, very familiar with the word Jesus. But it's not just a name. It has a meaning. And the meaning of it is God is salvation or God saves. And, of course, that's what Jesus, who turns out to be God, is bringing. Salvation. Because, as Gabriel tells us, he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. He will be great is a bit of an understatement. Son of the Most High is another way of referring to God. Calling him his son would have been a bit ambiguous to Mary at that time because it wasn't uncommon to call some people God's son. But as Luke's Gospel goes on, we see that Christians later interpret this to mean that he was the Messiah that was expected to come and save the people of Israel. And as I said earlier, uh, that Joseph... Um, his father was from the tribe of David is important because way, way, way back in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you're interested, God promised the original King David that his throne would last forever. And here, 
What's happening right in front of Mary is the fulfillment of that prophecy is being announced to her. The house of Jacob is just another way of talking about the people of Israel. And Gabriel also indicates to Mary with these words that Jesus is not just another big name in the family tree as we wait for the end to come. No, instead, Jesus, his kingdom will never end. The birth of Jesus, in other words, will be the beginning of the end. And to all of this, Mary replies, how will this be since I'm a virgin? That's a fair enough question. Last week, you might remember that Gabriel talked to Zechariah, and when he asked the question, he got struck dumb. But nothing happens to Mary. Why is that? Well, Mary is not saying this can't happen. She's just wondering how it can happen. Her question doesn't have any connotation of unbelief, whereas Zechariah did. And Gabriel then responds to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Which is to say, Mary, this is going to be a miracle of God. So much so that he will be called the Son of God. It used to be, years ago, I haven't heard it for a while actually, that people who had problems with Christianity would focus on Jesus' virgin birth uh, quite a lot. You don't, you don't really hear that so much. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't been talked about it in a while. And I wonder if that's because it seems kind of silly to focus on it. Because if you accept the idea that God is who he says he is, the being who created everything upon which all of existence depends upon for its continued existence, then creating life within Mary, it should be easy to him. It should be easy to accept. Which is exactly the point that Gabriel makes. Because after he's finished answering Mary's question, he goes on to tell her that even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren was she who was said to be barren in her sixth month. Is in her sixth month. And then he says something that must be accepted by any one of us who claims to follow Jesus, for nothing is impossible with God. And indeed it isn't. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, nothing that is possible is impossible. God doesn't do nonsense. The odd time you'd hear people ask about could God make a stone too heavy for him to lift or could he square or circle, this kind of stuff. And the answer is no, he can't do things which can't exist under any circumstances. But again, like many questions that are thrown at us today, it feels like an exercise in missing the point. Nothing is impossible for God. That's, that's a standard thing that you've got to accept if you accept God at all. The bigger question, the more important question is what are we going to do with it? You think back over the last few months, right? The series that we've been going through. All those sermons about bringing glory to God in different ways. Now think about all the possibilities that that series brought up in your head. And then hear these angels' words. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. How does Mary respond? She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Just like that. Is it any wonder that so many Christian churches have such a high view of her? And it's not just the Roman Catholics either, by the way, but the Orthodox and the Middle Eastern churches too. 
And this statement of hers is a fairly simple statement of faith and acceptance of God's will. And that's exactly what God asks of us today. When by his Spirit, he prompts us to do this or to do that, or to go here or to go there, or to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. He asks us to have faith and accept his prompting. A simple thing to do, and yet so hard, given that our lives are often dominated as they are by fear, selfishness, and pride. And yeah, they're mitigating circumstances. The world tempts us, the devil opposes us. But nonetheless, Mary's response here, that's supposed to be our standard. Next verse says, At that time she got ready and she hurried down to a town in the hill country of Judea. And uh, as I was thinking about it, I was wondering, was she excited or was she ashamed? She did have some pretty amazing news. So she might have gone off excited to share it. Or she could very well have been ashamed because in that society, in those days, a young girl who was pregnant without being married would have been ashamed. But on the other hand, maybe she was just bursting to share her news. Maybe she wanted to talk to someone that the angel had told her about. Someone who, it appeared, had just had something special happen to her as well. Either way, off she goes. And then upon arrival, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. The baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This picture, I love this picture. This picture of the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaping at the sound of Mary's voice. It's pretty striking, isn't it? And it adds the kind of miraculous feel that the whole story has. I, st- I still remember the first time that I felt our oldest daughter kicking through my, uh, my wife's belly. You know, I know exactly where I was, the M50 in Dublin. I wasn't driving. <laughs> or maybe I was, I, I don't know. I do remember, yeah, I was driving actually. <laughs> anyway it was a special moment Um, we were told last week that John Elizabeth's baby was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born no not to discount the miraculous nature of this but in one way this is just a natural reaction of someone who has the Spirit of God recognizing their own Lord this is one way that you can tell a Christian from someone who isn't do they enjoy the presence of Jesus? All right, that's very subjective and liable to produce some unwarranted questioning within some of you. But if you've never experienced joy in relation to Jesus, why? Do you not know who he is or what it is he has done for you and the world? And for those of us who do know him, but haven't had much Jesus-related leaping in a while. To use a phrase that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 4, what has happened to all your joy? Like her baby, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment, which explains how she's able to speak with knowledge about Mary's situation before Mary has even explained what's happened. And what she says is, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Now there are two things to point out here. 
Firstly, Elizabeth sees straight away not only who Mary is carrying in her womb, but that Mary has believed what she was told, because unlike her own husband, Zachariah, who expressed some doubt about what the angel said would happen and was punished as a result, Mary believed and was blessed by God because of it. When it comes... When it comes to the effects of believing or not believing in God, it's always easier to talk about blessing rather than punishment. And yet, here are both sides laid out in front of us. Don't deny one or the other. Secondly, did you catch the subtle way? This is actually a turning point, I think, in in this passage. The subtle way that Elizabeth let Mary know who was in her womb. It's one thing for Mary to hear, as she did earlier, that Jesus would be called the Son of God, or that he would be mighty, or that his kingdom would have no end. Those things could all be interpreted through the lens of this boy is going to be the promised one. Uh, but according to Elizabeth, Mary is also the mother of the Lord. Now, you know, did, for Mary, did it, did it really only click right there? Was it just then that Mary is beginning to see the full significance of who was in her belly? Not just the Messiah, but God himself was growing inside her. Again, we don't know. But Mary's response to these words of Elizabeth, a song often called the Magnificat, because of the first words in the Latin version, these are the words of a woman really aware that something unbelievable is happening to her. This is what she says. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Every bit of her, that's what she's saying, every bit of her, the very essence of what makes her Mary, is delighted with God. You can almost feel her excitement. I tend to imagine her rushing around whatever room she is in, singing at the top of her voice. You know that bit in the um, sound of music where she's in the field? You know that bit? No? The hills are alive. It's it's, It's not like that, but you know what I mean? It's a bit like that. Full of life and enjoyment. Whatever state she's in, she's clearly totally focused on God and over the moon. Why? Verse 48. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. She says she has been blessed because she knows that she has just become a principal actor in the greatest story that has ever been and ever will be told. A young teenager. Don't forget she's only, she's like a, she's just past a little girl. A young poor teenager from nowhere, going nowhere, is all of a sudden cast into the spotlight of the world. All of history will have, at one of its focus points, one of its main focus points, her in the narrative forever. Everyone will know her. Everyone will call her blessed. And indeed they will. Why? Is it because of anything to do with her? No. She is involved now, yes. But they will call her blessed because of who has brought her into the story. And as she says herself, for the mighty one, as God, has done great things for me. God has included her in his story, but it's not about her. And she knows that too. Her focus is on him, and her excitement is because of the presence of him. He's not an angel or a good luck charm. He's not some thing that's doing her a favor. 
Holy is his name. Holy. A lot of time, um, people, certainly when I was growing up, in a, tend to think of this word as referring to someone or something that's very good at performing religious duties. duties. If that was the case, it would be weird to apply it to God. A bit of a car- categorical error. Holiness really means being different. And God is utterly different. He's completely different. There's nothing like him. This is the creator of the universe that we're talking about. This is the God who made many promises to Mary's people and they are being fulfilled by the little baby that's growing inside of her, who also happens to be God. Is it any wonder then that the next five sentences almost fall out of our mouth in quick succession, each one showcasing another aspect of him and his power? I'll read them all together. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So what can we say about all of that? Well, there's actually no mention of salvation in these words. Mary doesn't thank God for paying for her sins and earning her forgiveness. But despite that, we can still say that this is a picture of what the gospel brings into her and our life. Mary's song is sung from the perspective of someone who knows that God loves her, knows that God owns her, and knows that God is with her and has her in his care. And what does she see? Does she talk about herself? A little bit. But mostly she talks about God's movements in the world. And the world she sees that has the Lord moving in it is the mirror image of the world she lives in. It's the mirror image of our world today. For in that world she sees that the Lord is merciful to those who fear him and opposes the proud who clearly do not fear him. In God's world he favors the humble and the hungry and the rich and the rulers he's got little to do with. This is the upside-down kingdom. This is the kingdom that those Israelites who were righteous were part of. This is the kingdom that had not heard much from God in a while. In fact, over 400 years since the last prophet Malachi had spoken. But he hadn't forgotten the Israelites. He had not forgotten the promises that he had originally made to Abraham. And a few times after that, to others who were descended from Abraham. He had promised them a new kingdom and a new king that would reign forever, and he was here, last. I've heard a lot of Christmas talks over the last 15 years. I've given a few myself about the real meaning of Christmas. Well, here's something I've noticed, right? Uh, And I do this too. Most preachers try to, when they're giving a Christmas talk, they try to undermine either the commercialism or the sentimentality of Christmas a noble endeavor. And our number one weapon of choice is to talk about how Christmas is really a setup for Easter. Jesus comes to save us. Jesus has to die for our sins. Christmas, in other words, is about our salvation. And that's not a sentimental thing. You can't buy that. That involves the debt of Christ. But I reckon that what Mary sings about here 
is a more powerful tool for stripping Christmas of the schmaltz. Because according to her, to this song, this child's birth, Christmas, is like a chainsaw to the neck of reality as we know it. It will not be good for the proud or the rich or the rulers of this world who are opposed to God. And that's what she's singing about. So what's he doing with ISIS? Well, the same thing he's been doing all along. He's calling people to a very different reality where he is king and all the ones on TV that we see every day are not. A very different reality where everything's upside down. A lot of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are dying because of the living in that reality. Because they believe in being humble, they believe in forgiveness and not murdering. They believe in proclaiming Christ as Lord. Without Christmas, their sacrifices are meaningless. Do not, this is it, this is the end, do not be fooled by the pictures on your television. God won the war nearly 2,000 years ago. Happy Christmas. A bread. Father, there's a, a lot of crazy things going on. Actually, there's always been. And your commands in our life has always been the same. Trust you, follow you. Those commands are harder when we're scared. Forgive us and give us courage. Help us to sing about you with all of our souls. Amen.